Well, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles, and uh, there'll be a, a bit of flipping in this sermon, so if you've got a Bible and it's open, you should keep it open. And um, don't have quite enough room up here for everything. So uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 2, well, yes, that helps. Thank you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 11 through 22. This is God's word for us this morning. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, By what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were near, or I'm sorry, you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you are also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of God. Amen. Father, we ask this morning that you would speak somehow in the, in the voice of a man when the man whom you have appointed for the task comes before the people of God with the word of God on his lips and truly preaches. Somehow in that moment, something spiritual and sacred and divine happens. You You send your word out in the act of preaching, and it goes forth in power, and it works. Um, Sometimes it works slowly. Sometimes it works quickly. Sometimes it works to produce joy. Sometimes it works to produce anger. Sometimes it works to produce sorrow or fear. But it works, and it works how you intended it to work. And we might resist it, but it still works. And we ask, O Lord, that it would work this morning and that you would do what only you can do, that is to change and strengthen a human heart in godliness. It is to you that we look this morning and we say, Master, speak, thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. Amen. 
and amen. Well, two weeks ago, I offered you the opportunity to rethink your thinking. And by the way, that's a, a good definition of the word repentance. Repentance isn't feeling sorry. Repentance is rethinking your thinking, metanoion, a change of mind. And I offered you the, the opportunity to rethink your thinking, particularly in the area of the Christian life. And, and your, I wanted to expand your vision of the Christian life. And I've been, I've been thinking on and off for a, a while about what kind of an image, if I, if I was one of these talented people with computer graphics or whatever, if I was going to make a short video or a meme of, of, or an image, a moving image of what, what I think you need to understand about the kingdom of God, I want you to imagine the sea of darkness. And in this sea of darkness are millions and millions of people who are sitting in darkness. And God comes along in this darkness and he shines a bright light. And that shaft of light is Jesus. People sitting in darkness have seen a great light, say the prophets, as they are quoted in the gospel of Matthew. And Jesus marches forward in this light into this darkness And then people start moving from the darkness into the light. And the light grows. And they march forward. And the light grows. And more people come in. And more people come in. And the people who are living in the light cease to live as those who live in the darkness. Because they've been enlightened. And because there's power to be had by coming into the light. And by coming into the light, they receive this power. They have to cooperate with Jesus. They have to walk with him. They have to do what he says. But they, they receive power far and away more than their feeble efforts could ever justify. And they become light. And they're different. And all the people in the darkness can look at them and can see them. The people in the darkness can hardly see each other. But they can see the people in the light. And the people in the light become the light of the world. That's what the, that's what the whole ongoing worldwide revolution is about. I, I suggested to you that your current understanding of who you are and why God saved you and what salvation is and what the church is to be doing is not so much wrong as it is incomplete. But since it is incomplete, it, it leads us to wrong assumptions and then to unhelpful or even wrong actions. And so the church becomes in our day like a farmer who diligently plants crops, but he's unaware of the existence of weeds and the existence of insects, and he can only think to pour more and more fertilizer on the crops. And then he wonders why his sincere efforts aren't producing good results. We need to understand that the reason that God saved us, that the reason that he called the church into existence is that he is bringing about an ongoing world revolution which was promised to Abraham when God told him that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's in Genesis 22:18. Now God's not promising there that the Jewish nation would bless the nations although the Jewish nation did have a role in that, but that's not what's promised there. The the word seed there, in your seed will all the nations be blessed, is singular. 
in the Hebrew. It refers to one particular seed, one particular male descendant of Abraham who would bless all the nations. And that seed, of course, is Christ. And Christ's coming set God's plan for world revolution into motion. And it continues today. And it will continue until Jesus Christ returns and brings history to an end, which I frankly hope is soon. And you look around at the world and you go, I don't know how this could go on much longer, but who knows? Now, Christ's ongoing worldwide revolution does not consist, or does consist rather in part, in the forgiveness of sins by the atoning blood of Christ. And of course, his ongoing worldwide revolution includes the promise that death is not the end, that there is heaven when you die. But the gospel is so much more than that. God's worldwide revolution is fundamentally about human transformation, which begins in this life and carries us forward and is perfected in eternity. And so what happens is... This makes a profound and visible progress here in the world. You change in the world. As you enter the kingdom of God, you learn to walk with Jesus in the easy yoke with the light burden, and you are transformed in a very visible way. It's about the power of God to change you into a different kind of person here and now, to free you from the sins which dominate you and which shackle you, and which make you and everyone else around you miserable. I, I, I'm going to embarrass my wife here for a minute. I didn't ask her permission to do this, but my wife is a wonder of God's transformation. I, I told her the other day, you are becoming a very wise and kind woman, and you are fascinating to me. And I just enjoy so much watching God work in her life. And I see it. And I see it in some of you as well. I'd like to see it in more, but I see it in some of you. God is at work turning us into different kinds of people, and everyone around us who really notices, knows us is going is to notice that. God wants you to enter into this grace-filled, spirit-powered training program together with other Christians in this room so that you become a person who is possessed by love instead of a person who tries really hard to sometimes act loving. So that what comes out of you naturally is love, right? C.S. Lewis had a, a wonderful statement in uh, Mere Christianity. He said, he said, when you go into a basement really quick and, and turn on the lights really quick, you might see rats, Right? But the, the, the suddenness of coming into the basement and turning on the lights didn't create the rats. It just showed you that the rats were there. They didn't have an opportunity to scurry and hide. Well, when somebody irritates you and you go, and temper, you can say, well, it's their fault. They irritated me. No. They just came into the basement and turned on the light real quick and the rats couldn't hide. You've got rats inside of you. And God wants to be the exterminator. God wants to kill the rats. And that's what, that's what we're talking about here. He wants you to join with him to learn how to be a person who's full of joy all the time, even in difficult circumstances, instead of a person who has fleeting moments of shallow happiness.
He wants to work together with you to produce a person whose inner character is such that what flows out of you is kindness and goodness and wisdom and gentleness and peace. Now, Paul unfolds all of that and describes the life that God wants to develop in you in some detail in chapters 3, 4, and 5 of Ephesians. But in these last 12 verses of chapter 2, he describes the historic process that God used to bring his ongoing worldwide revolution into being. Now, if, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stop. If you're struggling with this idea that God wants to produce an ongoing worldwide revolution in this world, I need to ask you to think carefully about the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill can't be hid, so let your good works shine so that what? Everyone may see and glorify who? You? No, your Father who is in heaven. And they're going to go, I don't know what this is all about, but there's something going on there. That person is glowing, and that glow is coming from up there, and they're different, and I may find that terrifying, I may find that repulsive, but I may also find that powerfully attractive. And I may want to know, how did you get that way? And if I knew you before you started glowing, I especially want to know that because you're different now. And I want to know that. That's what, so, and that's going to have an impact in the world. We are to be examples in the world of the kingdom power at work in an individual human life who's in community with a bunch of other people where the kingdom power is at work. And together we are greater than the sum of our parts. And that's going to produce an effect in the world. Every time there's been a revival, Every time, a real revival, not some guy sets up a tent and gets everybody excited and whoops it up for a week and then collects a bunch of offerings and goes somewhere else. A real revival. The culture, the population is radically transformed, even if not everybody comes to Christ, even if a significant portion of sinners remain. You, you can't be full of the Spirit of God and walking in holiness without just exploding your influence over everybody around you. You just can't do it. So, as I said before, Paul's describing the historical process that God used to bring this ongoing worldwide revolution into being. And as I mentioned before, the promise of worldwide revolution began with Abraham. And the covenant sign that God gave to Abraham that marked him and his descendants out as a unique people in the world. So we already see God's like this little bubble right here, this guy and his legitimate descendants. Are, this, is, this is my bubble of light in this dark, dark world. This is the only place I'm really working. I mean, there's a few others. You got Melchizedek. Nobody knows what to do with him, but you, you've got a few others. But, but for the most part, this guy and his descendants are where God's working. And in order to mark them out, God gave them a couple of things that made them weird. And God likes weird, which is good for you because he likes you and you're weird, okay? So, so God, God brings it, he, he says, I'm going to give you a, a, a marker of identity. Uh, I'm going to give you 
a sign to show that you are part of a covenant people, a unique people dedicated to relationship with the true and living God. And that covenant was circumcision of the foreskin. And if you don't know what that is, Google it, but wait till you leave the church, okay? And this marked the bodies of Jewish males. And it was a point of identity, and rightly so, so that any uncircumcised male was to be considered cut off from his people and was not considered to be a Jew. You may remember in, in, the, in the calling of Moses, and he's on his way to Pharaoh, and, and God comes and he's going to kill Moses' son. Do you remember why? It's because he wasn't circumcised. And Moses' wife, Zipporah, like does the deed quickly and averts God's death sentence on Moses' son. Now, that's, that's how seriously God took that covenant sign. And by the way, we as Presbyterians believe that, that the inward substance of that covenant sign of circumcision, it was transferred in New Testament times to baptism. The covenant sign of baptism is equivalent. It's the spiritual. When you look at the, the spirit behind the, the covenant sign, that that's baptism. Okay. So anyway, we could argue about that later. But, but so, so God gave the sign of, of circumcision and it marked the bodies. It was a point of identity and rightly so. And, and then a bit later in history, in the history of the Jewish people, God raised up Moses and he liberated the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt and he led them into the wilderness and he gave them the law. Now that law had three components to it or three categories, if you like. And they're important, and it's important to understand what those three categories are and, and to know why some of them we don't do anymore and some of them we say, no, you got to do. And there's a lot of confusion on this fact. At the heart of the law was the moral law of God. And at the heart of the moral law of God was the Ten Commandments. And at the heart of the Ten Commandments was the commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the first four commandments teach me in brief form how to love God, and the, and the commandments five through ten teach me how to love my neighbor as myself. So the Ten Commandments, the moral law, they're a reflection of the very character of God himself. It defines good and evil. It defines sin and sin righteousness and and it does not and it cannot ever pass away or change. Stealing was always wrong. It's wrong now. And it always will be wrong. And that's not going to change. There was a second category of law, though. And it had to do with how Jewish worship was conducted. And with various kinds of sacrifices and burnt offerings. It also had to do with how the Jews dressed and with what, what foods they, they could and couldn't eat. And then there was a third category of law, and that was the civil law. That was how they were to regulate their society and punish crimes and practice justice. Now, the civil law passed away when Israel ceased to be a nation and in control of themselves. And so, for instance, you find in the New Testament, when the Jews want to kill Jesus, they can't do it. They have to go to the Romans and get permission. And, and when, when the Romans say, we don't want to do this, punish him according to your law. And they say, well, according to our law, he's got to die, but you won't let us practice our law. Our law has passed away, so we need to kill him under Roman law. So those, those commandments passed away. The, the ceremonial commandments passed away with Jesus because they all pointed to him 
and now there's something different going on. And so you can have a, you can have a bacon cheeseburger and it's okay. It's okay, right? But the moral law, it's still in existence. It's still in existence. Now, the outward ceremonies of the ceremonial law were always intended by God to point not only to Jesus, but also to an inward and a spiritual reality. For instance, uh, and this is where it's time to start flipping. Get your Bible, if you've got one, and open to Deuteronomy and chapter 10. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So it's the fifth book in your Old Testament. Genesis chapter 10 and verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are to this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Circumcise the foreskin of your body in obedience to the commandment. But that's not really the point, is it? The outward circumcision should point to an inward heart reality. Circumcise your hearts. So then again we look and and we see that although God commanded these ceremonies and these burnt offerings, they could be done in such a way that they were not pleasing to him. And, and what was it that, that made an offering pleasing to him? Was it, was it attention to detail? No, he says, look in the book of Micah. Micah chapter 6. It's Old Testament prophet chapter 6. So if you get to the New Testament, if you go Matthew and then just go back like six books. Micah chapter 6 and verses 6 through 8. And this is just one of the places where God discusses this issue. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow before the God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Shall I, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I even give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You see, the Hebrew religion, properly understood, was not merely an outward religion of ceremonies and rituals. Anymore in our day, we see ceremony and ritual, and we think, that's just dead religion. No. The ceremonies and the rituals were there in the Old Testament to point to inward realities that ought to be there for the person who belongs to the Lord God. And properly understood, it was not a, a, a religion of ceremonies and, and rituals. It was, a, it was a religion of the heart. And so I have a bunch of verses here. I'm not going to look them up and go through them. But if you look at Deuteronomy 30, verses 5 through 6, you see God talking about the circumcision again of the heart, and particularly to the offspring of the generation whose bodies fell in the wilderness. If you look at the prophet 
Joel, you see God's after the heart in Joel 2, verses 12 and 13. If you look at Psalm 51, verse 17, you see that God wants an undivided heart, not split between a love of the world and a love of God. He wants a, a, a whole heart. These ceremonies and these rituals were commanded by God as an outward expression of an inward reality, but the vast majority of the Jews seemed to do what the vast majority of professing Christians do in our day. They settled for the superficial outward practice of whatever ceremonies were prescribed. They practiced something that has been called boundary marker spirituality boundary marker spirituality. And in boundary marker spirituality, what you do is you take superficial practices. For instance, we see this in the New Testament with Jesus. And this comes from a guy named uh, Dunn, James Dunn, who's a New Testament scholar. Um, they, They would take these superficial practices, and the ones that they always fought with Jesus on were um, the Sabbath observance and uh Uh, a couple other small things about dietary restrictions and hand washing and and things like that. That was the stuff that they really grilled Jesus on. And the interesting thing is that no Jewish rabbi would have said Sabbath observance and hand washing and and cleanliness rituals are the heart of of Judaism. None of them would have said that. But that's what they were fixated on. And why were they fixated on that? It's because here's these highly visible, easy to do things that if I do them, then I can go, see, I'm one of the good people. I'm one of the chosen people of God. God loves me. And why does God love me? Because I keep the Sabbath in a weird way and I wash my hands in a weird way and I'm obsessed with purity rituals in a weird way. And it, it doesn't really affect how I behave in my heart. I can gobble up widows' houses. I can steal. I can do all the, I can break promises and lie and all these other things and, and feel really good about it because I, I, uh, I keep the Sabbath and I wash my hands a certain way and I don't, I don't eat certain foods and wash the dishes and things like that in a certain way. And that's what God wants. You know, one of the most vile men I ever knew in my life was a good Assemblies of God member of an Assemblies of God church. And he tithed and he didn't drink. And he based all of his righteousness on that. And he was a serial adulterer. He was a child molester. He was a thief. He was disgusting. But everybody thought he was an upright man. And his, he, I tithe 10%. Made a lot of money. I tithe 10%. He was, he was really into the showy outward things. Inwardly, he was like a crypt full of rot. And he died. And I don't know where he, if he repented before. I sent him a text right before he died. I said, this is the truth about you. You need to repent now. He was in a cancer hospital in Houston. With his guts falling out. I hope he did. Some part of me hopes he didn't. Because I know the people he hurt. I can't stand him. But you can do that, can't you? You can be inwardly rotten. Or even just not that rotten, just sort of normal. Rotten. I just have a few rats in the basement. But outwardly have this show of pious behavior. And that's what the Jewish people, many of them, particularly the Pharisees, were doing in the day of Jesus. 
and they would say to themselves, look, I am one of the good people. I am one of the chosen people. I am part of the group that is God's whole plan in human history. And it really doesn't matter as long as I do these outward things, I can feel good about myself. And as a Jew, particularly as a Pharisee, I am in a very superior position to you Gentile scum out there. Now, there is a sense in which they were in a position of peculiar blessing, isn't it? I mean, they were the group of people that were the only people on earth that God was dealing with in a consistent way. So in one sense, they were in a position of superiority to the rest of the world. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3, and he talks about the benefits of the privileges of being a Jew, and they are substantial. Romans chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2, listen to what he says. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then we go to Romans chapter 9, and he takes up the issue again when he's dealing with the fact that so many of the Jews are rejecting Jesus. And, and he says, I'm, Romans chapter 9 and verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. Listen to all the advantages they have. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. So we see that this Jewish people had a real claim to some kind of privilege, right? But those blessings that they've been given were not to be the occasion for pride because they didn't do anything to earn it. You can, you can only be proud of what you've earned. You, I can remember, I, I, this lesson was burned into me when I was in high school. And, and my first car was a 1973 Mercury Comet. You remember that, Jim? It was a two-door. It had no air. It, it, the paint was all flaked off because it was in New Mexico, and it ate the paint. And, and it was, I mean, it was a total hoopty mobile. It had like a 200 cubic inch straight six engine. And, and I would drive to school in my $500 Mercury Comet. I learned to be a mechanic because I had to, because I owned a 1973 Mercury Comet. And, 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 I, and I would go to school, and I would see these kids, and, and they would have BMWs. And, and they would have a little Mercedes. And they would have, you know, a sports car, a Celica, or something like that. And, and they were very arrogant. You know, they didn't want me parking my piece of junk 1973 Mercury Comet next to their BMW. And they would laugh at me. And, uh, and yet, they didn't earn those cars. Where did they get those cars? Daddy, right? We used to call them Daddy Lacks. You're driving a Daddy Lack, right? Because you didn't earn it, but they were arrogant anyway. Somebody gave them a wonderful gift, and they went, hoo-hoo, what kind of person must I be that I have been given this gift? I am so wonderful. And that's what the Jews did. The Jews were like, we're obviously the people. 
We are obviously the people, and all the rest of y'all just need to shut up and admire us and let us heap contempt upon you. Now, we must always remember that when God blesses you, it's not the occasion for pride. It's the occasion for humility and gratitude. We always have to remember the pattern that God laid down in his promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and then you're going to be a blessing to the whole world. Let me just stop and and ask you for a moment. Ask yourself, what has God blessed you with? Has he given you a strong body? Has he given you musical talent? Financial success? Are you in a kind of a position where you have lots of flexibility and free time? Has he gifted you with intelligence and learning or wisdom? And they're not the same thing. Has he made you mighty in prayer or in spiritual warfare? Ask yourself, why did he do that? So that you can amuse yourself? So that you can be proud of yourself? No, no. He gave you those blessings so that you could be a blessing to someone else. Are you doing that? Are you walking in your blessings going, what can I I want to be a conduit, Lord. Whatever you pour into me, I want to pour out to others so that the light of the world is is seen through me. Or, Or are you walking right past the good works that the previous passage that we just studied said that God prepared in advance for you to walk in? Are you going, I don't see that. You're walking right past it. What are you doing with your blessings? What are you doing with your gifts? Well, in the midst of this whole mess of the Jewish religion, God was still at work. And Paul assures us of that in Romans chapter 9. And and God has had always, has had his own dear ones who loved him and who served him with their whole hearts. And and we find them sprinkled throughout the pages of the Old and New Testament. People like Simeon. I love Simeon. You remember who Simeon was? He's just this little old guy who hung out in the temple all the time. And he was old, old, old. But God promised him that he wasn't going to die till he'd seen the Messiah. And one day Mary walks in with this baby. And, 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 and Simeon, I, I love this prayer. I pray this prayer almost every day. It's in the Book of Common Prayer where I do my daily devotionals. And, and in Latin it's called the nunc dimittis, now dismiss. Lord, now dismiss your servant with blessing in peace for my eyes have seen the glory of the restoration of Israel there were people like John the Baptist and Anna the prophetess and Elizabeth Zechariah Joseph and Mary and and there were many others that didn't make the pages of scripture but God, God had his people. God had his people even in the midst of all of that mess and darkness whose hearts were God's and whose lives were transformed by the grace and power of God and, and who walked humbly with God. But the Gentiles were just out of luck. Of all the peoples of the earth, God was only working redemptively among the Jews. And you see sprinkled in the pages of the New Testament, you see this this tension because you had Gentiles like the centurion who had built the synagogue for these people. They were called God-fearers. 
They didn't want to convert to Judaism because that involves circumcision and giving up shrimp. But they loved God. They were attracted to God. And they would go and they they would try and worship God and know God. But there was still this, this barrier of all these ceremonies and this ethnic stuff. And so you were out of luck if you wanted to follow God. You, you could go to the temple and, and you could go to a certain court, which was busy and full of animals and people grubbing for money and everything else. And you could walk all around the outer court and you could see the outside of the temple. But, you, but there was a wall, five and a half foot tall wall made of stone. And every, every 50 feet or so, there was a sign in Latin and Greek that said, if you're not circumcised and you come beyond this point, your death is on your own head. They've actually found two of those signs. One of them's in Turkey, and I can't remember where the other one is. It may be, it's probably in Israel. But, but there was this wall, this dividing wall, and you couldn't go past it. So as a Gentile, if you wanted to do anything with God, you really, there was a barrier there. There was just a huge barrier there. Until the moment God launched the worldwide part of his ongoing worldwide revolution, which he did by sending Jesus. And Paul speaks to these blessed Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2, and he says, Hey guys, you remember, or maybe you don't because you didn't even care, but, but you were once called the uncircumcised by those who were circumcised in the flesh. In other words, there was an outward sign, but maybe not the inward reality. By a a circumcision that was just made with human hands, as important as that ceremony was. You remember that? Hey, Hey, guys, do you remember once upon a time you were cut off from the nation that was the exclusive focus of God's attention? Once you were strangers to these covenants that God gave to these people as a gift. Once you were without hope and without God in the world. Do you remember You remember how mostly they hated you and they loathed you as an unclean thing? And when a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl made the mistake of marrying a Gentile, the family would hold a symbolic funeral for that Jewish boy or girl, and then they acted as though that son or daughter was dead. Do you remember? Do you remember that if you wanted to worship the true and living God and you went to the temple, you could only go to that outward courtyard and you had to run into that sign reminding you that you were not one of the people that God was dealing with? Do you remember that there was nothing for you? Not that you probably would have wanted it anyway if it was offered. You were pretty happy with your false gods. You were without hope and without any real God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by this atoning blood of Jesus Christ. You who hated the Jew almost as much as he hated you have been reconciled to the Jew in Jesus who saves all of those who believe upon his name, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, and then he unites them together in one body. Do you see, O Gentile, do you see, O Jew, that God is making one new humanity, and they are the people that dwell in that bubble of light because of Jesus? In his coming and in his living and in his dying and in his rising, he fulfilled that ceremonial law that the Jews were using as a boundary marker so everyone can celebrate and have a shrimp cocktail together. 
And, and, and do, you, do you know now that he negated the sign of circumcision and replaced it with the sign of baptism so that you could draw near to God finally? Thank God, right guys? Right? It'd be hard to win converts if you were like, okay, circumcision time, line up, right? No. And instead of telling us to circumcise our hearts, now he instruct us, instructs us through his apostles to have our hearts sprinkled. By the way, that's where we get the sprinkling thing. As Presbyterians, have your hearts sprinkled because it's still about the heart. It's not about this outward ceremony. The, the outward ceremony has been commanded. You don't neglect it because that's what Jesus told you to do, but it needs to match with an inward reality. And then he gives three results of this reconciliation through Jesus, of this creation of a new common humanity. And we're no longer separate. And it wasn't just Jew and Gentile, was it? It was barbarian, Scythian, Greek, Arab, Roman, Spaniard, all these different races. They didn't like each other any more than the Jews liked them. And God says, we're bringing everybody together, black and white and brown. We're bringing them all together and we're uniting them into one common humanity. That's the vision of the book of Revelation, isn't it? I looked and I saw before me a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. There, the, you'll, in heaven, you'll still be white if you're white now. In, in, in heaven, you'll still be black if you're black now or Asian because God likes it that way. He made people different in order to glorify himself and their beauty and their diversity. And then he says, watch this. I'm going to mash all these different things together into one beautiful, harmonious whole. Nobody can do this but me. And God likes it that way. And there's this great multitude worshiping from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. And they're rejoicing and they're singing praises to the Lamb. That's what he's about. That's what's going to happen. So he says there's three effects here to this wonderful project. The first one we find in verse 17 of Ephesians 2, and it's peace, peace. He preached peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. That is, to those who were, those who were far off. That's a Jewish way of thinking. It's like the temple is the center of the world, and the Jews live around the temple. They're close. They're near. And then there's all these people out there, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. He's going to preach peace to those who are near, those who are far off, Jews and Gentiles. Now, you will perhaps recall from sermons past uh, what I've said about peace. Uh, we, we tend to hear the word peace, and we think about maybe one of three things in our day. We either think about like, the fighting that's going on in places like Ukraine or Afghanistan, and we want it to stop. Or, or we think about inward tranquility. I think that's probably the biggest one that we think about is inward tranquility. Or, or we think about kind of um, just not fighting, you know, maybe in a family, peace in a family or something like that. But, but the word peace in Greek in the New Testament, got a whole bunch of Hebrew meaning shoved into it that wasn't there in the original Greek. And in the Old Testament, the word for peace is what? Shalom, right. Now, shalom. 
okay? Now, shalom is not merely inward tranquility. It's not merely the cessation of fighting. Shalom is a condition of complete and total human flourishing in every dimension of human life. It it means your body is whole and is at rest. It means your relationships with other people are not simply without conflict, that's nice, but they're positive and they're life-giving. It means that God smiles upon you in goodwill and blessing because you love him wholeheartedly in return. It means that sin is either absent or else is quickly and effectively dealt with so that its effects stop the damage that they do. And whatever damage that is done is quickly healed. And of course, if you've got all that, then you've got inner tranquility as well. Shalom is, to put it succinctly, the way things ought to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be. There's a wonderful book by a theologian named Cornelius Plantiga. His niece was one of my professors at seminary, and uh, he teaches at Notre Dame. And he wrote a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a Breviary of Sin. And listen to him describe Shalom. As the great writings prophets of the Bible knew, sin has a thousand faces. The prophets knew how many ways human life can go wrong because they knew how many ways human life can go right. You need the concept of a wall on plumb to tell when one is off. These prophets kept dreaming of a time when God would put things right again. They dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out and rough places made plain. The foolish would be made wise and the wise would be made humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower and the mountains would run with wine. Weeping would cease and people could go to sleep without weapons on their laps. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Lambs could lie down with lions and nature would be fruitful benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood, and all nature and all humans would look to God and walk with God and lean towards God and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from the valleys and the seas, with, from women in the streets and from men on ships. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom is, in other words, the way things ought to be. And if you'll bear with me, he goes on to give an imaginative description of what the world would be like, what the church should be like under shalom. He said, we would nonetheless agree on many of the broad outlines and main ingredients of a transformed world. It would include, for instance, strong marriages and secure children. 
nations and races in this brave new world would treasure differences in other nations and races as attractive and important and complementary. In the process of making decisions, men would defer to women and women to men until a crisis arose. And then with good humor all around, the person more naturally competent in the area of crisis would resolve it to the satisfaction and pleasure of both. Government officials would still take office. Somebody has to decide which streets are cleaned on Tuesday and which on Wednesday. But to nobody's surprise, they would tell the truth and freely praise the virtues of other public officials. Public telephone books would be left intact. Highway overpasses would be free of graffiti. Tow truck drivers and erring motorists would be serene on inner city streets. Business associates would rejoice in one another's promotions. Middling Harvard students would respect the Phi Beta Kappas from the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople and would seek to learn from them. Intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba divers. All around the world, people would stimulate and encourage one another's virtues. Newspapers would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty. And at the end of the day, people on their porches would read these and savor them and call to each other about them. Above all, in the visions of Christians, God would preside in the unspeakable beauty for which human beings long and the mystery of holiness that draws human worship like a magnet. In turn, each human being would reflect the color and light of God's presence out of an inimitable resources of his or her own character and essence. Human communities would present their ethnic and regional specialties to other communities in the name of God and in glad recognition that God, too, is a radiant and hospitable community of three persons. In their own accents, communities would express praise, courtesies, and deferences that, when massed together, would keep building like waves of passion that is never spent. Jesus didn't come preaching just peace. Verse 14 tells us that he is peace. That when we are in him, we can be empowered to live in total shalom and interact with each other and the unbelieving world from a posture of unshakable shalom, confident of God's goodness and his care for us, even as the world hates us, even if it kills us, or if our worldly goods are plundered, or if our body wastes away because underneath God is holding us up. You, you, you are given by God. Jesus talks about it like it's something, like a, almost like an energy. He says to his disciples when he sends them out, he's like, when you go to a village, let your peace rest upon it. And if they, if they don't receive you, take back your peace. It's like something you can, you know, like give you like a quarter. I'll give you my peace. And oh, I want my quarter back. You're not worthy of my quarter. No, that's because he's given you something that he wants you to transmit outward. The shalom, this well-being. Why? Because you are walking in it if you are in Jesus. And he is our peace. And so we can interact with each other because we've got Jesus backing our every play. If we're walking with him, you don't need to worry about anything. You don't need to defend yourself. You can just give something away that somebody else needs. And you don't need to worry about being deprived because the God who gave you the thing to give away will just give you what you need. 
And you just walk. You can be in complete tranquility and calmness because God is underneath you and he's holding you up. Before, we were not a part of the nation of Israel. This is the second effect, Paul says. You were, you were not in, uh, of the nation of Israel, but now, you Gentiles, you belong not just to a nation, but to a household, a family. And it's not just any household. It's not just any family. It's God's household. You're not just the citizens of some nation now. You belong to a family together. Now, I'll say more about this another time. It gets even better, and this is the third one, and we're almost done. During Old Testament times, think about how God dwelt with his people. I mean, obviously God is everywhere, but his manifest presence, what was known as the Shekinah glory, dwelt in a certain place on earth, and it was in a small room over a gold box, actually a wood box overlaid with gold, And it was in the very center of what initially was a very complicated tent, but later on became a building known as the temple. And so if you wanted to go be near God, that actually didn't mean having kind thoughts about God in your heart and peaceful feelings. That meant getting up and going somewhere, like that you needed GPS to get to. You went to the temple and you got as close as your position would allow, whether you were a woman or a man or a priest or high priest, you got as close as you could because you were approaching God where he dwelt on earth. This is the place, says God, where I can reliably be found. It's in this little room, in this temple, in this, in this building, in this one place. But, but look what's happened. Look what's happened in Ephesians 2. We have become the temple. Us, the people of God, we now house the Shekinah glory of God in our midst, in ourselves. You are now, says Paul, a living stone in that temple. You carry God around with you wherever you go. You are an unspeakably holy thing. Do you, you remember when, when the Babylonians took all the vessels out of the temple? It was a shock to the Jews because they thought, anybody that goes in there is going to be struck dead, and, and then we'll be proved right, and, and everything will be fine. That's why they kept going to Jeremiah, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So God's there. He's not going to let these uncircumcised heathens come into his place, and he did. And you know why he did? Because the glory left. Because of their sin and his judgment upon them, the glory left and they were able to go in and they were able to take those holy instruments and then one king, Belshazzar, decides he's going to have a big old feast and he's going to profane the vessels. And God kills him that night because those are holy things. You are a holy thing. You are an object of his deep interest. You are a vessel of honor in the temple. You are a living stone in the wall of the temple. Will you not empty yourself of self so that you can be filled with God? Will you not long and strive to become a fit dwelling for your king? Can you imagine any greater honor than being a vessel in the temple of the Lord for his use at his disposal? There is no greater honor than that. 
and consider the effect of all that put together. Consider the gathered people of God, the church. Verse 22 says that we're being built together. It's an ongoing process. It's not finished. We're being built together into a dwelling place for God. In other words, we're a work in progress. We're not finished yet. There are many paint splatters and uncocked seams and unfinished rooms. In other words, we need to be patient with each other because we're in process. We we don't need to criticize and complain. We, We don't need to to do things that tear down the church. We need to build her up. We need to serve her. And when we understand why it is that we're here, friends, we realize that there is no sweeter place on earth than the gathered church. And it's time to gather again as the church and to recognize that that's why we're here. Why are you here? Well, I'm being transformed into uh, a part of the the temple. I mean, built together with these other people into a living temple for the holy God. I've got some work to do. I've got some rough edges that need to be knocked off, a little bit of sanding, a little bit of sawing, a little bit of planing, but I'm I'm being transformed and and I've got a special place in the wall, that that little niche right there. That's where I'm going to go. And it's going to be glory. Let me just close with a poem. I heard this in seminary, and I never forgot it. I, I almost like memorized it the first time I heard it. I don't, I don't know who the author was. He was anonymous. But it goes like this. I watched them tearing a building down, a gang of men in a busy town. With a yo-heave-ho and a lusty yell, they swung a beam, and a sidewall fell. I asked the foreman, Are these men skilled? The kind you'd hire if you wanted to build? He laughed and he said, Why, no, indeed. Just common labor is all I need. They can easily wreck in a day or two what builders have taken years to do. I asked myself as I went my way, Which of these roles have I tried to play? Am I a builder who works with care, measuring life by the rule and square? Or am I a wrecker? who walks the town content with the labor of tearing down. I think we've had enough tearing down around here, don't you? Let's build something. Let's be built into something by the Spirit of the living God. Lord Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.